right, uh, gentlemen, guys, good to welcome, good to be here, uh, good to have you all here and welcome you to uh, Depresculinity, the seminar using masculine intelligence in men's depression. And I'm going to introduce our, uh, our presenter and the person who developed this and uh, who's the founder of menspsychology.com, Dr. Paul Dobransky. Um, he's a licensed board certified psychiatrist practicing for over 25 years and he's seen uh, more than 15,000 patients and developed a lot of um, unique and uh, patent-pending material here, and um, also he's the founder of menspsychology.com. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Paul Dobransky. All right. All right, thank you. It's actually been over 15 years, not 25. I'm not quite that old. So uh, welcome to uh, our Depresculinity program, Masculine Intelligence for Men's Depression. And what I'm going to present to you over the next two days is not quite what you might think it would be from the title. This isn't about uh, being down and out and uh, you're some sad sack kind of guy. This has something to do with what's going on in our society these days too. We'll get into all the details uh, as we move along here, but essentially one of the things we've noticed at Men's Psychology is that um, the past few decades there have been so many cultural changes uh, maybe beginning with feminism in the, in the 60s and 70s that have kind of um, unexpectedly, unintentionally started to maybe disempower men a bit in our society. And it has something to do with technology as well. Uh, a lot of what I'm into, as you guys know, is evolutionary psychology, but I'm also what would be called a unification theorist. So all of the courses that we have interlock and integrate with each other. And I'm going to show you a bit how that works, too, right at the get-go. But as far as evolution goes, many, many thousands of years ago, probably hundreds of thousands or even millions of years ago, males have always dominated since those times because we have larger, more muscular bodies. But with the event of computers, you know, these days we all use computers for everything we do for work for the most part. And that has been a great equalizer for women. So women have as much and now in many ways you're going to see more power than males do, certainly more economic power, and it's, that's really on the rise. And our own identities have so much to do with our career status, and not just money, but what we do for a living as a mission for our lives, that is starting to get into a bit of danger unintentionally. There's no uh, secret cabal of powerful women who are out to get us or anything like that. It's just normal group behavior. Whatever group is in the most power wants to hold on to that power. So depresculinity is a, you know, a brand new uh, phrase that, or word that I have coined that I think is pretty descriptive of a, a kind of condition that men have these days that isn't about uh, being you know, mentally ill, so to speak, or completely impaired where you can't go to work or you can't date or you can't have relationships. But there are so many men out there that just don't feel fantastic about their lives or feel like they're honored everywhere they go just for being men. One of the uh, unfortunate uh, things that I uh, encountered uh, the last time I was in London, we do a lot of trainings for men on dating in London, LA, New York, and Chicago. And in London, I was uh, talking to a woman uh, you know, in a social venue, and she said, you know, you're American, I have something to say to you. There's a, yeah, there's a difference between uh, British men and American men, and British women and American women, and this is what I think it is. She said, in England, 
a man is considered honorable until proven otherwise. But in America, a man is considered dishonorable until proven otherwise. And I was like, wow, that is profound. So there are a lot of forces coming to bear uh, that work against you feeling good and work against you uh, not just going through the motions, going to work and drinking the Kool-Aid, but feeling great about what you do as a man, feeling great in your social life. And it's not just about social skills that you can learn in many of these dating trainings. It has something to do with your own identity and the culture around you, what you have to contend with. So depresculinity essentially is a way of addressing this kind of um, not feeling great about who you are and what your role in society is and what you're capable of. There used to be a term called uh, melancholia in my field. And what melancholia was is this kind of completely treatment-resistant depression. Um, this was even before the, the day of uh, pharmacology and antidepressants. It was like no kind of therapy would help it. And then coming into the uh, 40s, 50s, and beyond, no kind of antidepressant treatment. No medicines would help it either. And eventually it just dropped out of the lexicon. We tend to not use that word anymore in my field, melancholia. And it's like this profound, uh, deep, like existential crisis kind of depression that both men and women could have. But I actually think it's gender specific. I think that's what explains why it was treatment resistant, why there was nothing you could do about melancholia. Because no medicine will make you feel like a man. Even if you could you know, go to the store and buy testosterone injections, that's not going to give you a vibrant dating life just by doing that. And it certainly isn't going to give you the, the dream career that you were made for. It's not going to address your life story and what's happened in your life story. It's completely nonspecific. So we're going to get a little bit into the biology of things. I'm going to also show you a quick video uh, just a few minutes in here, too, to really set things up right. But this is not going to be on choosing antidepressants or what different antidepressants do. That is a well-established uh, discipline in psychiatry. If somebody has something that's you know, clinical-grade, standard depression, definitely go to a local therapist and doctor for a prescription if they decide together with you that that makes sense. That's not what this is about. This is about what you can do for yourself and how you can communicate to yourself and to others and to women and to other men in our Western society these days to be able to combat uh, this situation called depresculinity. Okay? So let me show you a few things, beginning with us, men's psychology and men's psychology magazine. What we're about is uh, helping men build skill with women dating and relationships. That's one major area of your life. Work and finding a career mission, not just a job, but what you and only you could do better than all other men. Success, happiness, and fulfillment, which is kind of the department we're in this time, talking about your mood, but then how that ripples into everything else. Personal growth and character maturity. We use masculine intelligence in the education, discovery, innovation, and evolution of being a man. Okay. So that's what we're about. Now we're going to focus down heavily on happiness and what is that. And it's gender specific. 
It's a major point that we're going to make. And this is a new phrase uh, you may not have heard me use before, masculine intelligence. Uh, what do you guys think I mean by that? Masculine intelligence, I, you know, I probably have a little bit more back of the house, you know, impression of what that means, yeah. you know, having, having worked with you. Um, you know, it, it's, um, it's something that, uh, that's not talked about very much because it goes to men's instincts. And um, I think by way of introducing that topic a little bit, you mentioned in your intro the economic power that women have. And I think it's really important to uh, clarify that point a little bit. And I think it might help us understand why it's not, not, why it's not uh, masculine intelligence maybe kind of sounds weird, like it's kind of a, a, something that's there but isn't really talked about that much. I just wanted to clarify the point about economic power that you made, women having economic power. It's not so much the salaries that they make, it's the purchasing decisions. And the studies have been that women control more, more, about 80% of all purchasing decisions. So that's who the advertisers want to reach. So if you're a programming director or a media executive network or TV or whatever, and you're looking at what you want to program, what kind of programming, you want to reach the advertisers who are trying to reach the women. And this is part of the reason why a term like masculine intelligence or even a discussion of masculinity isn't, seems kind of weird and it isn't quite covered as much in our, in our culture and in our society. So the economic right. power thing might Thank have uh, tripped some people up who think in terms of salaries and I think we were talking more in terms of their purchasing power in society and how that affects the media messages we get. Uh, to me, I guess masculine intelligence would be uh, using the observing ego to have an awareness of your male instincts and uh, and then being able to take action on that to, to get in touch with your core masculinity so that um, so that you feel powerful and and you you understand how they sway you and and take that yeah, into account exactly you know like uh, my dad or granddad might have said something like you know I know what time it is right like being awake aware and savvy to what's going on around you not just locally but globally you know what's going on in our culture and how does that impact your psychology right in all these areas of being a man so if we looked at these uh, four areas quickly I want to show you how everything integrates okay those of you who are familiar with uh, some of my older programs uh, one I did eight years ago uh, with a guy named David D you might be familiar with uh, that was like me just starting out and since that time I have all these various building blocks of psychology so you're gonna recognize maybe some diagrams in one program that you might see in a different program maybe even going back as far as eight years ago don't be alarmed by that it's just that the human mind works the way it works and it has all these working parts and what I've done is in a visual way in a, in a graphic uh, algorithm way, in a puzzle piece kind of way, I've essentially decoded a sort of periodic table of the elements of the mind. So we have all these little working parts and we can put them together like you'd put together different atoms to make a molecule. What we're doing with this course is taking all those working parts and assembling them for you this weekend in a way that completely addresses mood and depression, sadness, anger in a specific male context. So it's like the periodic table of the elements. So the way uh, our courses run, if we were to look at um, you know, the, the core courses, some of which you may be familiar with, like um, the MMP, the Mature Masculine Power Program, is now called MI-MAN, Masculine Intelligence for Being a Man. 
MI Charisma, the KWML, you might be familiar with about personality styles. Mind OS is now called MI Growth, Masculine Intelligence for Your Personal Growth. And then MI Essentials is a, a bundle that includes a lot of those. Some of you uh, originally came to us for dating help, dating and relationship help, and uh, going out on the town doing a boot camp or expedition where we meet women live and you know, learn all the nuts and bolts of how to communicate effectively with women and attract them. So we have a, a suite of products that have to do with women, MI Women. used to be called the Omega Male Program. MI Dating, MI Sexuality, MI Girlfriend, MI Relationships. These all have to do with various stages of communicating to women and having a relationship with them. MI Work, everything to do with your career. So we have MI Man, MI Mission, MI Politics, MI Leadership, and MI Team. These are various aspects of addressing your career. So it's our career suite. MI Evolution is about personal growth and character. So MI Growth, MI Skills, MI Politics, MI Leadership, relevant once again, and MI Tools. And then finally, uh, a success suite has everything to do with friendship, happiness, and fulfillment. And this is the category that uh, masculine intelligence in men's depression or depressculinity fits into. We're going to be dealing with an area of the mind that evolutionary psychologists call the mammalian brain. Now, a lot of times when you do a dating training with us, we're dealing purely just with the reptilian brain, with the, uh, the area of the mind that's involved with sexual attraction only. This time we're dealing a lot with emotions and how that impacts things. So if you would suspect that you might have this little condition uh, that we've recognized called depressculinity, you're going to find that, yes, it's going to impact your ability to attract women, but it's just going to massively impact an inability to keep a woman, to maintain a girlfriend relationship, or to move beyond that into uh, any kind of commitment. This is where you get really impaired in that area of dating by depressculinity. So what is depressculinity? Nobody is talking about it, but both men and women are feeling its effects in area, every area of life. And um, I'm glad you guys are here because there's a natural male instinct uh, that has shame to it to admit any kind of weakness. Now, luckily, you're going to be discovering that this is not a, a shameful body of knowledge to learn. It's about empowering yourself, and that's a very good thing. But men find it shameful to even think about, let alone explore, causes of mood trouble that they have. They won't talk about it even to their friends, let alone go to a psychiatrist or a therapist for it. And the statistics are building more and more about that all the time. Men, uh, men avoid therapy. And there's probably a good reason for that. Uh, there's a certain nature to the languaging of therapy that's so, um, I guess I could say vanilla. <laughs> you know, it's uh, gender neutral. It's uh, sweet and nice and uh, maybe kind of maternal. It's kind of rare to find a paternal therapist. In fact, uh, it was a number of years ago I asked a, you know, a very old colleague, um, you know, how do you guys select people for candidacy to be psychoanalysts? And just off the cuff, it was a woman, just off the cuff she says, oh, well, we look for kind of feminine men. <laughs> that made me feel great. It's like, thanks a lot. <laughs> But she goes, no, no, you know, we look for very maternal men so that they'll be nice to the patients and 
they just have this, you know, nice sweetness to them. And I was like, you know, I'd, I'd really rather have a male psychoanalyst who's like a, a tough guy who smokes cigars. <laughs> Maybe Freud was the only one <laughs> that ever was, you know. So, uh, so men find it shameful to go get help. And that's normal and natural as an instinct. Um, if you think about things like um, anybody ever know somebody that went to couples counseling, you know, like relationship on the rocks or marriage on the rocks? You know, wh what do all the stand-up comics say about that stuff? It's ridiculous. It, it, it's not made for men. It's completely not made for men. Men will shun it, and with good reason, because it's not speaking to them in their language. You know, unwittingly, it's a kind of treatment, really, for women. It's more for women than you know it, you know. We wouldn't talk about that publicly, uh, usually, because that's completely politically incorrect to say that. But you just know it's not for you. You want to say something quick about that? We'll definitely talk about that later. Okay, but this is, a, this is another reason we felt that, you know, after all this time, we felt compelled to make this particular program as well for maybe men who've done some therapy, maybe not even couples counseling, but just done therapy of their own, where, you know, they get the, all the typical advice. Cognitive therapy is just, you know, the number one gold standard for depression today. And it, there's no cognitive therapy for men and cognitive therapy for women. It's just cognitive therapy. And one size fits all, fits both genders. And there's something just dreadfully missing from it, I'm sorry to say. And I think that's the reason men go to dating programs. I mean, do you really need to go learn from a, quote, guru about how to date instead of just talk to your buddies, you know, or meet some new male friends who are successful with women? Why would you go to a dating training? Well, it's because there's something else going on underneath that. And you know there's something missing in society that doesn't feed you as a man. In the same way that that British woman told me that in England, men are honored because they're male. That's the starting point. And then you are dishonorable if you do something dishonorable. But here, if you're a male, you know, if you like it, you better put a ring on it. It's sort of the, uh, you know, it, you are to do stuff for us. That's your role here. Uh, in the West. So obviously depressed masculinity is harming relationships um, between both men and women and it's impairing uh, men's ability to function with their bosses, employees, co-workers if they happen to still have a job while in its clutches. It gets individual men fired and is killing the company overall too and the economy. And it ends individual marriages but it's killing the very institution of marriage too. Because obviously marriage is for two people, uh, not just one. And if the male is just sort of slogging along, barely getting by, going to work, saying yes, honey, and doing honeydews, that marriage is on the rocks. You know, I, I can't think of a lot of people that I know who are still married. You know, it's like they start it, they end it a few years later. I'm still in the same state. It's like, welcome back. <laughs> so there's, there's a major problem going on. Um, and it's not a genetic condition that I'm talking about, yet it does pass on from father to son to grandson, this depressed masculinity. It's not genetic. 
unless you want to say that because you're male, you're prone to get this. Okay. Every man is um, at risk for having this condition called depresculinity. And it's a combination of the words depression and masculinity. And I think it's a profound but overlooked form of depression that affects millions of men. And through the thousands of patients that I've treated as a psychiatrist and the tens of thousands I've trained as a teacher on dating and relationships, as well as my own personal struggle to overcome adversity, I think it's uh, one of the hardest times in history to be a man these days. I've become convinced that men experience this kind of depression once called melancholia, very differently from how women do. And the very act of seeking help actually makes it worse, you know? You know, the uh, people joke around about how men don't ask for directions. You know, thank God we have Garmin's GPS systems these days because we never need to ask for directions again with those. That's a machine. So there's no shame in asking the machine for directions. But it, it's because we feel shame when we ask for help directly. It's another reason these dating trainings are so popular. It, you're not really asking for help. You're uh, becoming alpha. That's different from saying, I need help, okay? So it's normal and understandable to not want to ask for help. As a man, some of my colleagues would say, oh, how could you say that? How could you say that? You know, these men, they have to, like, get over themselves, get over their big egos, you know? Ask for help. That's being a man. No, it's not. It's wussy, and you know it, and you feel it inside. So, no. You shouldn't ask for help, but you still may need help. You'll have to get it some way or another, okay? So we're offering it, and you don't have to ask for it. <laughs> we'll just give it to you. <laughs> Depresculinity is acted out in affairs and relationship conflict. Substance abuse is one end point of it. And neglect of children, if they are present. Sometimes it's funneled into the hopeless resignation of obesity or permanent underemployment. And for others, even leads to the dating seminars of pickup artists, the social equivalent of get-rich-quick schemes, none of which offer real relief, of course. Anybody ever go to one of those uh, you know, motivational speaker seminar things, you know, like the Tony Robbins thing and everything? It's like people pay thousands of dollars to go you know, fist pump, a weekend and it's like they go home and it's what did I learn <laughs> I don't think anything it's like cheerleading it's like going to a rock concert um, this is going to empower you for the rest of your life uh, you're never going to think the same way again in part because all of this is so visual you know there's so many diagrams to it depresculinity can happen when a man is single and searching for a relationship or when he's already in a bad relationship so it doesn't matter if you're single or in something with a woman and it spills over into every collaboration between men and women. Workplace misunderstandings, uh, bullying, sexual harassment, bleak job outlook. Uh, and uh, trouble with money is the number one cause of marital strife. Okay? I'm going to show some startling statistics to you soon about that. Um, growing numbers of unhappy singles in both genders. And online dating fail to quench the thirst for love. For the very first time in the United States this past summer, the, uh, we reached a point, a tipping point of there being more singles than marrieds in this country for the first time ever. 
this past summer. Yeah, more single households than, than coupled households. Yeah. When we look at your environment, we're going to learn all about you and your mind and how your mind can do this and what to do to, to stop it. But we also are going to talk about what the environment does to us to help encourage this condition to happen. Um, a lot of it has to do with you know, what I began with. It's that um, you know, if somebody says, hey, look at this sweet car that I want to sell you. It's uh, $40,000, and it's worth five hundred. Come on, buy it. Seriously. You, in fact, you have to buy it because everyone's buying it, right? All your friends are buying it. That's kind of like marriage these days. Everything is stacked against you as a male in marriage, legally. Marriage is a legal contract. It's not a psychological state. The psychological state we're after that I think everybody eventually wants is commitment. Commitment is a psychological state. Marriage is a legal contract. They're different. And the legal contract is completely stacked against you. When I, uh, when I signed a contract and then you know, found a way to back out of it uh, to uh, be The Bachelor, like years and years ago in the second season, and they went and showed video of me anyway against my wishes, this contract says, I agree to be belittled, betrayed, made fun of, attacked, insulted throughout all per perpetuity throughout the universe. And I was like, what? <laughs> Is this a marriage license? <laughs> Those are the literal words. It was like, we can, I couldn't believe some of the words they used. Yeah, we, we could insult you, degrade you, debase you. I was like, okay. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. So, um, so that's why, you know, men are, uh, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're kind of avoiding marriage more and more. And then what women are doing is saying, see how bad men are? They can't commit. Why can't you commit to this car for 40 grand that's worth $500? Can't commit, man. Bad man. That's what's going on. Advancing age at first marriage and first child. You know, that is escalating. You know, first marriage is uh, over 30. You know, it used to be like 18. And uh, which is no small dilemma for women who have set aside marriage for later while building careers. You know, women have also been told, do everything men do. Build your career right out of school, right? Now, some female authors are starting to write about really odd, you know, it seems to the mainstream, odd... Uh, Advice like, focus completely on men right out of college. Do not get a career. Learn to socialize right out of college. And do not get a career till you're 30. Seems like strange advice at first, but biologically, maybe not. That kind of thing might be a fix uh, for this condition. Unchanged numbers of the divorced. Okay, so divorce isn't on the rise. It's that people are getting married later. People are starting later or just not marrying at all in the first place. And uh, one member of every two couples is having an affair, meaning one in four total people or one in two couples. Okay, not good. It's because people aren't getting their needs met. You know, we cover in uh, one of our other programs, the Omega Male program, how there are all these exact steps to human courtship 
And what guys like learning the most is the sexual attraction steps, right? The very beginning, the first phase of courtship. Women love the friendship phase and the commitment phase more. But um, if you don't do all of those steps in courtship, then you have kind of this incomplete courtship. And I think that when affairs happen, it's always with somebody who fills in the other steps that your partner doesn't, which is why you ought to choose well in the first place. Get them all with one person. So depresculinity amplifies this effect too, as you'll, as you'll find out. Uh, the compounding effects of divorce on children and the very institutions of marriage and nuclear family are even coming into question as viable in an ongoing way in our society. Okay, some statistics. Yep, single households in America surpass the number of married households. Completing college, only half as many men as women are now graduating college. So maybe that's the place to go meet women, actually. <laughs> oh, Tim, you're enjoying that right now. Um, men are fleeing their child-rearing responsibilities or having them taken away by the courts. Deadbeat dads, parental alienation syndrome. Uh, actor Alec Baldwin writes a lot about that. And going so far as seeking divorce insurance on top of prenuptials, even before considering marriage. Okay, and once on the unemployment rolls, they stay there rather than finding a way to continue supporting families. Single women without children now outnumber single men in employment and earning power by at least 8%. So if you've noticed anything in the workplace about you know, women's um, advancement, um, earnings, and power, it's, uh, it's no illusion. Even though a lot of co uh, corporations, you could still go into, you know, walk right into a corporation today and see a lot of uh, posters up about how there's a glass ceiling for women and they're underprivileged still at work. It's just plain not true. Women make 8% more than men if they're single. Okay? What, uh, the hidden statistic on that is that um, what's always kept those statistics down for women is that they have children and voluntarily don't work. <laughs> That's why they seem underemployed and make less income. It's because they have children, voluntarily. It's not somebody took money away from them. Um, many single men who once would have considered marriage no longer see women as true partners in building a financial life, though the women have more earning power. Recent study on men who are completely economically dependent on their female partners found them five times more likely to cheat than men in relationships with women who earn similar amounts. What do you think of that? You ever hear the uh, John and Kate plus eight, the Goslins, right? He was, a, I guess, a computer programmer. They have nine children, like several sets of twins. They did a reality show on them. Yeah, he was a computer programmer, and he quit doing that to help raise all these nine kids, or eight kids. And um, his wife quit being a nurse, and her star rose. She was more appealing in a lot of ways as a TV personality. And then he just basically had no... Uh, career. He's just watching the kids. And then maybe he cheated, maybe she cheated, but they got a divorce in part because of this. Most of these Hollywood uh, breakups that you see in divorces always have to do with the woman outshines the man. Not, a, not on purpose. I mean, if your wife wins an Oscar, how awesome would that be? But this is all unconscious and psychological. It's something that you didn't do on purpose, she didn't do on purpose, it just happened. And it's wonderful for her, 
but you feel a little less like a man because of it. And nobody's talking about this in these terms. It's what's going on. So watch out. If you marry a woman uh, who makes much, much more money than you. Men are graduating college at lower rates than women, finding less employment, and often at lower wages. They need to feel their masculine identity through the individual expression of their career and the rank and value of measurement they determine as males through income. They feel valued by women for their income, not for materialistic reasons, but for the masculine spiritual reasons that our instincts dictate. Do you know what I'm talking about? I like that women like me for my earning power with certain conditions. You know, that it's obvious you know, I'm not getting used. It's like a respect thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? It feels good to treat a woman, to pay for the date. Feels good to do that as a man, so long as it's appreciated. Okay, this whole dynamic is just gone, at least in the West. Maybe not as bad in England as in America, but it's just evaporating, this concept, that the man pays, the man buys. So now the man is buying, or feels the pressure to buy, and would get some enjoyment out of buying for the woman, treating for the woman, but the woman makes 8% more money than him. Something's not working right here. Women, even while earning more, are also instinctually uh, tending to judge men for this, reflected all around us in the commercials of De Beers, the diamond makers. Did you know the De Beers company invented the whole concept of engagement rings around the turn of last century? Yeah, they didn't exist before. They found these diamonds, and they're like, hey, these are valuable. We've got to make everybody buy these, not just the rich. Let's start engagement rings. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, the entertainment fair of the millionaire matchmaker, for example, and even in the music of Beyonce, who exhorts us that if we like it, we better put a ring on it. No questions asked. Women worldwide control over 80% of all consumer spending. Did you know that? Actual documented. Yeah, thanks, Tony, for ruining my, my game, my seminar game. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, man. I was just reacting to the uh, economic power, and um, people always talk about the salary thing, and I just wanted to make that uh, clarification. So. <laughs> yeah, true. The economic power, look at that. They control 80% of all consumer spending, documented. Women's worldwide wealth between 2011 and 2014 will grow, will grow by, this isn't the total, this is how much it will grow by, $5 trillion. It's a lot of money these underprivileged women are, are making. Uh, they're graduating school more, earning more than men, keep more and grow faster in money and therefore power, while media messages suggest that men need to buy more rings and like it. <laughs> <laughs> the Atlantic Monthly recently ran a provocative article called The End of Men, which argued that traditional masculine virtues are no longer needed for leadership and progress in our society. Traditional masculine virtues are no longer needed for leadership and progress. You may also recall Neil Strauss's 2005 bestseller, The Game, which spawned a host of internet companies and amateur gurus who offer dating advice to men. But the amateur, unscientific social tips offered in the game miss the point. 
men aren't just trying to hook up and frolic. They want partners who honor them as unique and different as men. They not only want to understand women, but thoroughly be understood by them. Depresculinity, I think, has always been a part of the human condition for men as a personal illness. But now for the first time, it's also clearly becoming an illness of our culture. Okay? There is a cure, and it's not a new kind of pill. It's also not the standard talk therapy, which treats men and women as having the same instincts, needs, and desires. In depresculinity, you're going to see the answers and how much men need women and other men to team with them in defeating it. Our lives, livelihoods, and love itself are all depending on this. Simply put, women must be stopped. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, we, we have to evolve. We, we need to evolve the sense of masculine intelligence to recognize what's going on. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a uh, kind of like a big cultural situation, like uh, your first time going to New York, where you notice that New Yorkers have a certain way of doing things and a certain way of thinking. And it's not your way of thinking. And you need to kind of work with that and fit in to get what you want to need. Or if you, were, uh, if you were a Palestinian working in Israel, there'd be certain things you look out for that you understand about the culture to be able to go do your work, right? In that sort of way, you know, in our corporate workplaces, we have to kind of get by and exist as men with political correctness in a way where not too many people get offended by us. But privately, when we talk to each other, you call it locker room talk, we're actually speaking the truth. What do you guys think of that, uh, that news story from this past year where uh, the female reporter was in the men's locker room and complained that she thought men were looking at her or something? Do you remember that? Yeah. Anybody feel kind of weird about that scenario? Almost like saying, well, what the hell is she doing in there? <laughs> it's a men's locker room. Get out of there. That's our, that's our place. That's where we change. <laughs> yes? Felt like she had blatantly crossed into a boundary and then was expecting them to behave differently inside of their own home. Right. And it would felt very weird to me, not in, a, not in a bullying way, like, well, what does she expect? She's in a men's locker room. They should sexually harass her or yeah. say inappropriate things. But yeah, I don't believe that either. But mm -hmm. why is she there? How about uh, respond to this one? Did you hear about the J. Crew CEO? It's big in the news this past week. She was painting the toenails or fingernails of her son on an ad. Anybody feel kind of creepy about that? I felt like she's using her son to say, hey, look how cool I am. I'm the new cool mom with a minivan, and I'm a CEO. I actually responded to that on Facebook. Oh, wow. On, your, on oh. your thread about that, I'm Brick Armstrong on the Facebook. So You're I, Brick Armstrong. Yeah, it's my <laughs> pseudo name on Facebook. Is um, that the guy from Weatherman? No, it's a made-up name from high school. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I saw that, and I, it was very disturbing to me because I felt like this woman doesn't understand that what she's doing in those early years are really going to form an image that he's going to have of himself. And there's enough challenges for him out there in the world with the things that you mentioned earlier, the feminization, the it's not correct to be a man, you know. Yeah. You should be more like a feminine. Um, and now she's instilling that at an early age. How is he going to then deal with that later on when he's confronted with, you know, the challenges of life, dating, yeah. marriage? Yeah. Work? 
Yeah, that's, that's my worry for him. And uh, my worry about that advertisement for society, too, is that it's broadcasting this message that that's okay and that's cool to do to a son. You know, if it was like a tender private moment, haha, between mom and son that nobody would ever know about, okay, that's fine, so long as his dad takes him out hunting as well. Okay, that's cool. But what she was doing is broadcasting that this is what you ought to do to a son. And I'm not worried that he might, you know, turn out gay and not want to be and this sort of thing. It's what we're talking about with depresculinity. It has something to do with honoring your male identity. You know, if I were the father in that situation, I'd be like, oh, no, you are not going to do that. You're not going to and you're definitely not going to email blast that to millions of people. You can get a model, you know, a child, child actor, and ha-ha, you know, it's just, he's just acting. You're not doing that to my son. And the woman would not understand why. She'd be like, what? I'm his mom. Come on, I'm his mom. We're just sharing a mom-son moment. But how will that impact him later on? Um, bullying. Bullying is a major, major topic uh, for me that, uh, that I champion stopping. But just imagine what would happen to that kid if the parents of somebody else at school got that email and their son saw that email. How would he get treated in school? And I'm not even saying he would get beat up physically, but all the emotional things that get said to boys and to men that we don't respond to because it makes us weak and wussy to respond to insults and let them get under our skin. But they hurt nevertheless. There's emotional bullying. So it's sort of putting your kid in harm's way. And I know I'm on a soapbox here, but a lot of what we do at men's psychology to try to get women and men to understand each other better is to act almost as translators of language, okay? And the, uh, the, the Rosetta Stone for connecting these two languages, man language and woman language, is emotion because both men and women have emotions. We have joy, sadness, uh, anger, frustration, fear. We all have all those same emotions, but we have those emotions about different scenarios. So the exact male equivalent, the flip side equivalent of this J. Crew CEO uh, painting her son's toenails, I think would be if the CEO of Harley-Davidson Motorcycles threw his five-year-old daughter on the back of his bike without any safety measures and tore off and then shot video of it and used it to advertise Harleys. That's exactly what went on. That's putting her son in harm's way in the same way this Harley Davidson CEO would be putting his daughter in harm's way. Only for the son, it's bullying that's the harm. And harm to his identity, his forming identity. All right, enough of that. Uh, you can cry now. Let's talk about crying. <laughs> okay, just kidding, somewhat kidding. Um, it's okay to cry in front of other men who mentor you and certain higher-ranked members of your team, but generally not your whole team, except in the situation we are now in where we're not here starting a business or on a military operation. We're all here specifically for personal growth, specifically to learn. And in front of this team, it is okay to cry. I will do EMDR tomorrow, which is a, uh, it's a type of uh, uh, 
hypnosis technique that really helps you bring out hidden, maybe unconscious uh, episodes from your past that bring you down in mood, that have a lot of negative emotion connected to them. So, you know, anybody that uh, you know, wants to try at that, we can do that. And one of the most profound experiences uh, that we get to have when we do these live trainings, and no seminar is more appropriate for this technique than this one, um, is to do EMDR in front of the group. Uh, it's how I learned uh, from my professors. They delivered it to each other. And when they did, I was like, whoa, why are they telling, I don't want to know about their personal stuff. These are my professors. You know what I mean? I didn't quite get why they were doing that. Because there's this, you know, there's professional boundaries around, you shouldn't know personal details about your, uh, your superiors uh, in medicine in my field. But it was so effective that you could just, you really got what they were doing and how this technique worked. And I think when we do it in a group uh, like this with a bunch of men who are all wanting to learn together, and this is like being on a team together, it's really touching and profound because there's this acceptance of whatever you went through. Uh, an example of a man I had a few years ago that we did this in a group format, uh, had not talked to his dad in 10 years. They had a fight, and they were finally making amends. You might have been here for this. Tony, I think you were. Um, but he made amends with his dad by buying him a motorcycle, and they went out riding together. And the first time they went out riding, his dad went first at this intersection. He looked uh, right, left, right, and go, and a truck hits him and kills him, his dad. Yeah, and he brought that out. It's something he's been dealing with and uh, you know, not addressing, really, for, for years. Brought that out to the group, and it was just very powerful. Uh, to see what happened. So, um, you are supposed to cry in that technique if you want EMDR done, okay? Uh, politically incorrect as it may be, you ought to not cry in front of women. It generally, generally doesn't serve you or them unless it's your mom. Any thoughts on that? I think ideally, it would be best to not cry in front of women. I don't see how it would serve you. Does that include even when them. you're sad? Like at a funeral? Or where it's appropriate and socially acceptable to cry? I don't know. It's a controversial issue. So I'm, I'm raising it um, to the far extreme for you to kind of counterbalance it. How does it make you feel for me to make that statement? I'm not saying it's possible to avoid doing but how does it make you feel to consider what's it like to cry in front of other men versus cry in front of women versus cry alone? How do those three scenarios feel to you? Uh, I think crying in general is wrong. I'm not saying that I'm correct uh, uh, by my thinking, but naturally that's what you know, I think just I, I don't really cry ever in front of men, in front of other women, or by myself. You don't. Why not? I just think it's uh, weakness. Do you by yourself? Yeah, I guess you so. You just don't. <laughs> you guess so. <laughs> I don't know. The man who never cries. Well, if you think about it, I think there have got to be exceptions, like a funeral, uh, you know, a birth. I get that. But what I'm talking about is like being a weepy person. Okay. Yeah. 
And I said your mom specifically because as a boy, for you to cry in front of your mom, you would get assistance that only a mom can give. You know, one of the things moms do for sons and daughters is to help them decode what emotions mean. Um, what names do you put to emotions? Part of what moms do for us. So you're crying, she picks you up, she looks in your eyes, and she says, oh, you're sad. Or maybe she says, oh, you're angry. Or, oh, you pooped. Whatever it is, she helps give you a name to the nuances of emotions. That's part of what moms do for us. So it served us well to cry as boys with our moms. When you, if you're a weepy person as an adult, and part of the reason I'm saying a weepy person is because if somebody's suffering of some sadness and depression, chances are you know, they, they are crying or weeping or feeling like doing so more than the general population. When you do that a lot publicly, it further compounds the, this feeling of depresculinity, you know? Because now, not only are you sad, but you're shamed, too. You shamed yourself. So I haven't really thought about crying as such, um, but in, the, in a relationship between a man and a woman, you don't want to be, you don't want her to be your mother. So crying is sort of the signal to, you, signal to your mother. That's sort of what's happening at the instinctual level, right? Well, not globally. You know, it, in, a, uh, in a committed relationship, we sometimes lean on each other's shoulder, right? But it's not all the time. It's not all one person leaning on another person all the time. Sometimes we get a little of a maternal vibe from our girlfriend or wife, uh, and you would just call that support or some cheerleading. A mom might tell her son, good job. Yeah, you won the game. That's great. Good for you or you got an A, that's support. It's a little encouragement, right? It's a little honoring. So that kind, yeah, sure. But it can't be that dynamic all the time. Well, uh, it's the difference between uh, empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is where you're like, you're in the other person. You are the other person. Empathy is you can you know, support and feel, imagine what it's like to be them, but you're not them, and you know it. And you're coming from a point of strength to support them. You know, this is one of those things we, we always are using this uh, model, the triune brain model from the um, evolutionary psychologists. And when you're in the higher brain, when you're in your uh, cerebral cortex, one of the things that happens is, um, you know, logic. It's all logic-based there. When a woman cries to you and you sympathize and you talk about it, you're in your higher brain with her and your mammalian brain the emotional brain. I'm going to show you a video very shortly here that's going to help explain that. But when you say, okay, listen, you know, we've talked about this about an hour now, and I'm going to kind of take charge here. Now it's time for us to start solving this problem. You know, I totally get how bad you feel, and I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to solve this problem for you now, or with you. I hope with you. And she might be like, you don't care about my feelings. And you're like, but I'm going to solve the problem, honey. And that's another one of those little cultural things that can tweak you as a man these days because it is your role to solve problems and not get over-emotional about them. You know, think caveman days or ancient hunter-gatherer tribes. If you had these guys in loincloths running around in the woods killing animals and each other, 
warring tribes. And a guy broke into tears and said, I just, that deer was so beautiful. I, I, can't, I can't throw the spear anymore. <laughs> you know, they would die. I mean, today, I've never hunted. Okay, I've never, you know, used a gun to go hunt. I don't know if that's for me. But we aren't going to die if I don't learn to hunt today. But back then, the village would die if you had a guy like that. So that's how we evolved. And it's normal and natural. So what our culture is telling us today, that it's not normal to have that instinct, that how dare you solve the woman's problem for her? You're a bad man. You should be more empathic and cry with her. <laughs> okay? Our culture is trying to disagree with biology, and that won't work. That's why, that's why marriage is so on the rocks. Culture disagrees with the facts of biology, which is our minds work the way they work. Yeah, on, a, uh, on an unconscious level, I'm not saying don't cry at funerals, but I'm saying if you're like a weepy guy, or you've had a legitimate six-month period of actual standard depression, regular depression, and you get weepy a lot because you have clinical depression, that is unwittingly, unconsciously going to turn her off to you. Whether she likes to admit it or not, it is. She might not even be aware of it. She might be saying with her cerebral cortex, logically, oh, listen, honey, I understand that you're depressed. We're going to get through this together. She might even try to convince herself that she's still attracted to you during that six-month period. But her reptilian brain is not. It's not. Luckily, in a committed relationship, we have three different phases of connecting with the woman that all come into place. It's like, it's like putting three locks on your door. You know, If one of the locks breaks, you got two other locks, luckily. So we have friendship and we have commitment with a woman but the sexual attraction part can wax and wane. And that's another uh, major point. Thank you for bringing that up right now because having this depresculinity condition is decidedly unattractive sexually to women. If she sees you at that low point of reptilian brain, that low masculinity, you cry in front of her or something, is that more irreparable than the other levels of the brain? Like, is there just no turning back at that point? She will always see you that way instinctually. Whereas if, if, she, if you make a mistake of, you know, knowledge or something in the higher brain or emotional, you work through an emotional issue, is it just harder to work through that at that stage if you've kind of thrown all your cards on the table and, you know, got to that low level of masculinity with her? Yeah, that, that gets a little bit into uh, one of our other programs. It used to be called the Omega Male Program. Now it's called Masculine Intelligence with Women, MI Women. Um, give me three levels of investment. What would be like a bad investment? Junk bonds? Does that sound like a bad investment? What's kind of a medium-grade investment? Like blue chip stocks, bonds, stocks. What's like the most solid investment you can think of? Is it gold or a house? No, gold. Sexual attraction is like a junk bond. Okay. It's uh, very enticing, right? You might make a lot of money on it, right? If you do it right. But it's very fickle and unreliable. So it's okay 
if there's, what I'm saying is, it's okay if there's a fluctuation in the level of sexual attraction with your girlfriend or wife. These other areas of courtship are way more durable for holding you together, especially once you throw in shared lives. You know, once you've spent years together, you have this intertwined life story that's also holding you together. So it's okay if the sex waxes and wanes, but yeah, there can be a point of no return if you do something just so decidedly unattractive that it will always be in the woman's memory, um, like cheating or, I don't know, just totally breaking down when she really needed you to be a man. Even if you are depressed, she needed you to, you know, stop the mugger from, you know, mugging you, you both, or from, you know, the man from taking your house, you know, or losing your job and not getting something else. You know, it can be irreparable. Let's take a look at the biopsychosocial model used by uh, mental health professionals. It's a way of uh, helping us really understand uh, what we're working on here. If you start over in the, um, in the biology uh, bucket there, all problems that have to do with your mind and your mental health can be broken into these three buckets. There are biological causes, there are psychological causes, and then there are kind of environmental causes, like where you live, you know, what friends you have, and I just call that stress, stress and social. And for biology, when we have problems with biology in this specific area of depression, uh, psychiatrists look for what are called vegetative symptoms of depression, and that means you know, the person has no energy and their sleep is all disordered. They can't fall asleep. They wake up early in the morning. Um, they, they just feel physically listless as well. There are all these physical symptoms that can actually come with a standard clinical depression. And that's part of how they begin to suspect a medication might be useful. You know, if you get to a physical level of depression where you can't get out of bed, can't go to work, you know, it's pretty serious. You've got to try a medicine in that case. We're not dealing with that in this course. That's biology. Um, if we move on to psychology, somebody uh, has a, a, a situation where their style of thinking is negative. It's pessimistic. Maybe they have negative beliefs, uh, trauma, bad life's experiences that affect how you think and therefore what you do and what you think your, your potential is as a person, then it's a problem of the psychology, not the biology. And medicines don't do anything for that. Only therapy or education can, if you think about it. To try to use a medication to fix a problem that's pure pessimism, life history, have a lot of traumas, would be like trying to build a house with only a sledgehammer. You know, it's not going to work too well. You have a, a big aha? In recent years, they've tried to prescribe a lot of medicine, and now I'm just realizing why it never worked. Why didn't the doctors and the people who prescribe that medication know what you just pointed out? Well, they, uh, they have been trained to know that, okay? There are a lot of variables in play. You know, we're not diagnosing people clinically here, but there are a lot of variables in play when somebody diagnoses a, a, a mood condition, and... Um, you have to put them into context according to causes. But these are the three general causes of any trouble a person may have with their mind or with their behavior or with what's happening in their life. 
There are biological causes, psychological causes, and stress or social environment causes. And for the biology part of things, we're going to go over some statistics uh, quickly, but medicines generally are about 30 to 40 percent effective. Now, you wouldn't really pick up on that from the commercials of people skipping through fields of flowers and, and all that. And, you know, the butterfly lands on your nose and you fall asleep and you're not depressed anymore. Um, I am definitely not against meds or pro-meds. It's that they are useful in the right context. And that's why you do a clinical interview of a person when you're a psychiatrist. You figure out which meds would be useful, probably useful. You try them. You tweak them. You may eventually find that, oh my gosh, this, this person's condition is just refractory to treatment with most, most of the standard medicines that we can use. Maybe we need to back up a bit and rethink what is the cause here. Okay, uh, There was a study that came out recently that showed intense and frequent light therapy, like very, very bright light, almost like a tanning booth kind of light. Um, that the person uses frequently and constantly is more effective than medicines, or at least as effective as medicines. That's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, there's, al there's also probably uh, uh, something beyond that too. Might have to do with the pineal gland that that regulates, uh, you know, seasonal changes in our behavior. Right? Psych cyclical changes in our behavior, probably something to do with that. I really, really rebel against uh, you know, the marketers of the world out there that are like, don't use medications, use my special water, and that kind of thing. I hate that stuff because medicines, you can't do without medicines for certain things. Like bipolar, you cannot do without medicines for bipolar depression, bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia some of these conditions that are very, very genetic. Okay? So the key word for biology is genes. There's something going on with the person's genes. You know, they have a predisposition toward depression. Or maybe they're really bipolar, not just standard depression. Okay? But I'm also against drug companies kind of portraying that everything is medicatable and should be medicatable. It's clearly not. And really, that's what we're talking about in this course, is the stuff that cannot be medicated. You know, you can't go take a testosterone injection to be a more effective man. It's ridiculous. Okay? And in some cases, it's ridiculous to try to use an antidepressant to fix something that has to do with the fact you just got broken up with. Get better dating skills. You'll feel great. <laughs> no medication needed for that. But there's detective work involved in psychiatry. It's why, you know, it's why we go to school, to learn how to do that detective work. Okay? So I think the answer for you is, you know, maybe, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. It depends you know, on your specific scenario, but I'm glad that's useful to you to be thinking that, okay, things that are pure biology are probably genetically related, and I get physical symptoms. Things that are psychological, now we're getting more into the domain where a guy could go to work, and he could have a girlfriend, and he can spend some time with friends. But there's something wrong with the guy. He's, he's not feeling 
alive. He feels less than alive. Okay? And we're getting into the psychology there. Now, the other thing, stress and your, uh, your environment you choose to live in and the friends you, you choose to keep, only you control that. Okay? So the cure for biology problems is medication. The cure for psychology problems is standard therapy and um, education. And the cure for stress and your environment, only you are the cure for that. No doctor, no therapist can make you move cities or get a better job or break up or go learn some dating skills. Okay? So if you have these three buckets, you've covered every possible cause of a problem psychologically. I have a question about where, where a panic attack might fall. You know, like you don't have a chronic condition, mm -hmm. but um, you may feel some stress coming from the outside, and you're starting to feel those physical symptoms. Yeah. You know, like you might just completely break down. <laughs> you know, have that panic attack. Where is that like between, right between psychology and biology? With a panic attack, you know, you could, you could divide these up into percentages. You know, for, for one guy, the, his, his panic attack, or, you know, in our case, we're talking about depression, panic attacks can go along with depression as well. You know, some of the same neurotransmitters are involved biologically. It could be 30%, you know, 33, 33, 33% for that guy. For another guy whose mom and grandma and granddad all had suicidal level depressions, maybe it's 80%, 10%, 10% for him because he has all this genetic weighting against him. For another guy, he might have really robust genes as far as mental health goes, and maybe this is like 5%, 80%, he's this pessimist because he had all these bad things happen to him in his life. Okay, And there's this unfortunate one-way um, sort of overflow that happens for us all. You could have great biology, feel great about who you are, um, great psychology, you're an optimist, and you have a normal childhood, everything's great, and you go get this new job that you're really excited about. And you go in there as an optimist, and uh, everybody looks at you like, why are you so happy? What is your, see this guy is so happy, you gotta be kidding me. And you're like, oh that's okay, I am happy, I'm glad to have this new job. I'm sorry you guys feel so bad, but yeah, I'm going to inject some happiness into this corporation. And a month passes, you know, see the clock ticks, and now, now the guy's like, oh God, why did, I, why did I take this job? It's because the environment he has put himself in can be unhealthy for you. It can be demasculinizing for you. It can be depressing for you. And it can start to ripple into your psychology and affect how you think. It can make you do what's called regress or go backwards in maturity level and start acting Jerry Springer style. You know, getting in petty arguments with people when that's not like you. Same thing can happen in relationships, by the way. If you get in with the wrong woman, over time, her behavior can start to affect you, start to bring you down because she's this depressive person, or she's immature compared to you, and you start being more and more immature. So your psychology starts getting altered by the environment, 
if you have enough time in it. Now the thing that is a barrier against that, we learn in this program and especially in some of our other programs like MI Growth, which is formerly MindOS, a boundary is your first line defense against that affecting that. But even the guy with the most robust boundary, like a force field, eventually it's going to crumble if he works for the, like the post office for years. Or if you work for, the wrong, work for the wrong company, in the wrong situation, or you're in the wrong relationship. It'll eat away at you like termites in your boundary over time. Now you're more of a pessimist. If you do this for long enough, guess what? Eventually it'll actually start to affect your neurotransmitter systems of the brain. You'll start getting depressed. You'll start, and you'll get panic attacks. If you're a pessimist for long enough. So it's an unfortunate one-way deal going this direction. But then you see all the awesome commercials for pharmacology on TV. And you go to your doctor and bully your doctor into giving you Lunesta because you saw the butterfly and that's what you want. <laughs> and there's not much he can do because of the force of, you know, consumer relations, now that medicine is a business as opposed to an art. And he'll probably eventually give in and give you the medicine you're demanding from the commercial. And if we get honest about it, it happens. And now you got something that's trying to fix your biology which is great. Medicines are great for what they're intended for. But in fixing your biology, you've done zero about all this stuff that's still coming in and you're still working for that damn company. And you're still a pessimist, even though you're on this medicine. And you'll prop yourself up for as long as you keep taking the medicine. That's what I think happens. When you see a lot of people go on antidepressants, and again, we're not supposed to be talking all about like, everything to do with medicines and antidepressants here, but I've seen so many people on them for so many years, you start to suspect, really, is like 70% of society genetically impaired on this planet? Is it, are we really that biologically Disasters? It kind of doesn't make sense to me evolutionarily. We've been on the planet for quite some time and have pretty perfect brain design from that evolution. So something's wrong there. I think what it is is we're propping up our biology on one side while we're making bad choices in careers and women and where we live and how we treat ourselves on the other side. And we're in this internal battle where the medicine's trying to help, but we're not changing anything about us. This course, Prescalindy, is about totally seeing through all this stuff. So I thought it was more of like pessimism is just an opinion about how you think things will turn out. You can be a psychologically healthy person, maybe you can be a pessimist, but you seem to be saying it more in terms of pessimism as that is your psychology. I'm just using optimism. it as kind of a code word for negative psychology, right? Negativity in your psychology could come from, you know, you were bullied as a kid or you're a veteran of war and you saw combat and you're traumatized. It could be from um, immaturity. Your parents didn't have any boundaries. They didn't teach you any boundaries. Um, you know, a lack of um, life's experience. It could be all these things all wrapped into one. I'm just using pessimism as like 
the kind of word most people use to describe something wrong with your psychology. Negative, negative psychology. Psychology, therapy can help with your mood and ordinary depression, but most therapy, as we've been talking about, is gender neutral. It's vanilla. What works for women is supposed to work for men. And um, that only goes so far. Doesn't help melancholia. And then uh, stress and social situations, only you are the cure uh, for your stresses and your environment. And part of what you're called on to do is go from boy thinking to man thinking. I was telling you, antidepressants are generally about 30 to 40% effective. Now, if you add therapy to them, it becomes much more effective, about 60, 70% effective if you take both antidepressants and therapy for standard depression. But guess what? 0% effective for depressculinity, what we're talking about this weekend. Why? Because standard therapy is not going to tell you it's, it's good for you to be a man and here's how to attract women and uh, here's how to talk locker room talk and know that that is right to do. That is your normal language. And medicine certainly won't get you a better job and get you a woman. So 0% effective. Now there's one thing even higher than that, ECT. Electroconvulsive therapy, shock therapy, they used to call it. And I know you saw those movies about you know, people breaking their teeth and their jaw and biting on a, you know, on a popsicle stick and all that. One flew over the cuckoo's nest and all that. It, it, it's like the safest anesthetic procedure today. It's safer than getting a tonsillectomy or an appendectomy. It's very, very safe. And it's 90, over 90% effective for depression which is pretty damn effective. But I think part of why it's effective so robustly is because people can get some um, memory impairment. Okay? So if you were... They don't, they, they don't remember what they're pessimistic about in some cases. We try to reduce the, you know, the amount of memory impairment that you get, but I, I think for some cases that involve you know, personality disorders, uh, you know, problems of the person's uh, maturity level, things that medicines can't do anything about, I think kind of what it does is it, they, feel, they get a placebo effect, they feel like they had something done to them, and it changes their style of psychology. They're like, well, I had something done to me, okay, now I can let go of my negativity, kind of a thing. Um, melancholia was taken out of the psychiatric lexicon, and it might be reinserted, actually. They're talking about bringing it back which is surprising. Drug companies wouldn't like that very much since it can't be treated with, with medications. But I think it is curable only if you look at gender. Only if you look at how men and women are different. Yes? Um, yeah, you were saying how antidepressants plus therapy is about 60% effective, but yeah. you know, not if you have depressculinity. Right. So would you, would you, are you saying that 40%, the other 40% is a is gender specific? Uh, probably not entirely, but I think there's probably a substantial amount in there, which are the men that are walking around there listening to Beyonce and uh, you know watching the De Beers Diamond commercials and kind of going to work and doing as they're told by their wife. 